happening on Wall Street. Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. Now we have a little gem, a little gem, particularly if your weakness is football. We have a podcast today all about the economics of football and it's sponsored by Now. You know the deal with Now. You can stream unmissable live action from the Premiership all in one place with Now Sports and Now Sports extra membership from a tenor. Actually, this is going to be a really good conversation me being the sport billionaire. Yes. But I am fascinated. The older I've I've got, the more into football I've got, actually. Oh, I know. Can I tell you, when I was a oh, kid, no. when we oh, were kids, no. when we were kids, I would try to get John interested in football and John would arrive and I would be there with Shoot magazine, right? And I would know what my favourite player's favourite dinner was, which was usually steak and chips or scamping chips. And John, like maybe in the FA Cup final day, and John would arrive down with a book about animal tracks and signs, or astrology, or nature. And I would just look it's at him true. and say, I'd say, I'd say, man, you don't get it. And now I don't obsess about <laughs> sport and you do. <laughs> I've got totally into it. So before we get into this, you know, okay. I have now, and I have become an obsessive of succession. Yes. Right? Yeah. You know, Shiv, Kendall Roy. I know people who are like Kendall Roy. I'll tell you all about it. He's the he's one of the kids in the drama. Right. But John, there's more than just movies and drama, that sort of stuff. You yeah. can actually watch loads and loads of sport on now. You can stream all the action, Sky Sports, BT and Premier Sports with the Now platform. You can enjoy live Premier League games and you can stream, and I know you're a bit of a fan. I am. Unmissable, I am unmissable rugby, particularly with the Heineken Champions Cup with Now Sports Extra. And it's all from a tenor. John, in order to get a bit of structure on this discussion, because we clearly yes. can't put structure in any discussion. No, no, no. But in order to get an expert view, you remember Simon Cooper? I do. Simon Cooper of the Financial Times has written the Bible on this called Soccernomics, which is the economics of soccer stroke football, depending on... Have you never noticed that? Yeah, yeah, depending on where you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, big, it's a very, very significant difference. Do you say soccer? Or do you say football? Soccer? Soccer, for sure. Well, we'll talk about that again. But it's it's a give, it's a tell. It's like a tell in poker. Yeah. It's a giveaway. So Simon has written the book on football economics called Soccernomics. He's on the line from Madrid. I hope it's as it's kind of going in and out, so bear with us. Simon Cooper of the FT, brilliant mind on football. Let's talk to Simon. Simon, how are you? Uh, very well. We're only in Madrid for one year. You can't see, but outside the window, uh, the sun is shining. It's a lovely city, Madrid, and I would totally recommend everyone to go and live in Southern Europe, as long as you don't have to depend on the Spanish or Italian economy, as long as you don't have to get a job here. It's great. Um, you know, what's not to like? The sun shines, the people are friendly, it's a new language to learn. It's, um, it's extraordinarily pleasant, and it's much cheaper than the North. John, that's it. The Northern Company is the podcast. Yeah. I will have Factor 50. I'll be sitting in the You'll sun. You'll more than Factor 50, I can tell I'll you. I'll be sitting in the sun, rejecting the foreign food, looking for <laughs> chips, but trying to get into it. And trying Taking to... chips already. Trying to hablar espanol, which would be pretty cool. Anyway, Simon, we are here to talk football. You have written two editions of Soccernomics, the sort of the economics of soccer, the economics of football. 
Give me the big picture first. What is going on in uh, football, particularly the Premiership, but in general, the, the, the football world? We're actually updating Soconomics again ahead of next year's World Cup. So what's going on in the football world is pretty much what's been going on for 120 years, which is clubs lose money. You know, these clubs are not businesses. They're not trying to make profits historically. They're trying, they're pursuing glory. They're buying the best players. They're spending every penny they have and more on players. And, you know, historically, they're very badly run because they know that football clubs pretty much always survive. So if you look back at the clubs in the English top four divisions in 1921, it's pretty much the same as in 2021. And as we know, most companies that existed in 1921 are long since dead and defunct. So football clubs have this amazing stay in power, even when they go bankrupt. They're just immediately reformed and survived. So there was a big fuss in England two years ago when Listel Berry went bankrupt and folded. Guess what? They exist again and they'll rise up the Normandy pyramid. So um, in football, death is never quite death. So COVID was, was very damaging, of course, the most damaging thing that's really happened economically in football history, because never before, even during world wars, had stadiums been closed for a year. But we looked for this addition of soconomics, any clubs in Western Europe that had died, and there were one or two that had merged, very small clubs you'd never have heard of. Everyone is still here. So what you're saying is these are, because they are fan-based institutions, they're kind of impervious to the drama of economics, which plays out in their balance sheets all the time. Yeah, I mean, they structurally lose money. And occasionally, when they do go into bankruptcy, what just happens is you discard the bankrupt company. So every football club in England is a limited company and also a club. So the limited companies go bust, doesn't matter. You form a new limited company and you put your football club in that, playing in the same shirts with pretty much the same name, Maybe you change it from AFC Berry to Berry FC in the same ground with the same 5,000, 10,000 people who care about you. And you just go on forever. So there's a there's a strange immortality that football clubs have. And these are tin pot businesses. I mean, even Premier League clubs, the typical Premier League club is economically about the size of an IKEA, not IKEA the company, but one IKEA store has about the same revenues as a Premier League club. No way. No yeah, I mean, way. I mean, look, they, they, they essentially play one home game every fortnight and, and then they get a little bit of that TV money. So these are huge uh, emotional brands, but they're not very big businesses. I mean, you know, Barcelona a couple of years ago beat $1 billion revenues, you know, which uh, I think we said was 0.02% Walmart's revenues. So the biggest football club in the history of football, the biggest sports club in the history of sports that year, Barcelona 2019, just before the pandemic, they were. Um, they would never have been anywhere near the S and P five hundred of you know the five hundred biggest U.S. companies. They're 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 a, they're a tin pot business. Even Barcelona, then. That's extraordinary because again, what you hear is, and what you and this is okay. Not here. You feel, and maybe this is this is the conceit. You feel football clubs are huge, right? Because you watch them on TV, because they're part of your life, but they're actually what you say, kind of Mickey Mouse businesses. Yeah, because, I mean, here we are talking about, let's say, I, we just mentioned Barcelona, but we can talk about it for free. You can go to the pub with your mates and talk for free about Manchester United. If you want to watch Manchester United in the pub, often you're just paying a beer or two to the pub, and the pub is paying a subscription. So really there's not that much money. The football clubs have this love, but they struggle to appropriate, to monetize that love. They've got this problem of appropriability, as it's called. How do you monetize love? 
Well, okay, how do you monetize love? That's a podcast on its own. On its own. On its own. <laughs> but but Simon, let's look so let's look at even though they are small businesses, let's look at them as businesses. Small businesses with outsized footprints in people's minds and in people's hearts. Okay. So let's look at the premiership because what it seems to me is that small and all is the overall businesses are, the premiership does seem to be sucking in a huge amount or a disproportionate amount of revenue in the European context. How does the premiership work? Explain that to me. What's the split between ticket sales, between broadcasting rights, as you said, us watching the pub, and between, let's say, merchandising? Well, the trend in the last 30 years is that television becomes more and more important. So 30 years ago, almost all the club's revenues would be matched in. You know, people arriving at the game, uh, buying tickets, maybe buying a scarf. And match day has shrunk typically to less than a third. I mean, match day is best, I think, in the world for Arsenal because you have a modern stadium in Europe's richest city with a lot of city bankers willing to pay a lot of money for suites, etc. So Arsenal make a lot of money out of match day. Less good for Newcastle, say, because you just don't, or Liverpool, because you just don't have the local economic base. Uh, Liverpool has a very old stadium. But match day is less and less important. TV is more and more important. And more and more the action is international. So uh, the Premier League gets about, I think, five billion over three years. Internationally, about the same in England. And the international share is going to grow more and more. The English share will remain fairly stable. You've now got to switch to streaming. So, of course, people don't watch TV anymore. But I think streaming will work well for football clubs because it's just going to be easier and easier for you to buy a subscription to watch, say, all Premier League games or all Newcastle games on your phone. It's going to be very convenient. And so I think streaming is going to actually increase the business. Premier League has risen, you're right, relative to other leagues. So the Spanish League, you know, it was strange that the Spanish League was the strongest in Europe because this is a mid-sized, not very rich country. And it was the accident in part of uh, Messi and Ronaldo and the best Spanish generation of players in history arriving at the same time, making the Barcelona-Real Madrid game into this global phenomenon. That's now fading. And I think what we're going to see the next few years is the Premier League clearly the number one league. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the Spanish league. For Irish football fans, the the great living legend of Irish football is still probably Chippy Brady. Of course, Roy Keane, very much so. But for an older generation... It's Liam Brady. And Liam Brady, I remember when he was in his pomp with the most, as they used to say, the educated left foot of the chippy Brady, he went to Juventus. So in the early 80s, the the holy grail of football was Serie A. Maradona was there. They were the most glamorous. They were the best. They were winning the European Cup. They had a swagger about them. Do you think is that the way in which La Liga, the Spanish league, will go? It'll be kind of end up like Serie A, that they'll actually lose some of that cachet and clubs will go bankrupt. And over time, the bankruptcies do actually take their toll. I mean, in the 1980s, the Italian economy had surpassed the UK economy. You had Pizzo So this was really Italy's best era economically. And Italy is actually poorer now than it was in the 1990s, which is extraordinary. Also, because of Berlusconi, Italy was the first country to have TV channels paying significant amounts for rights. So that combination of TV, money, a healthy economy, a very strong local football culture made Serie A briefly the best league in the world. I don't see that era coming back. Logically, the strongest league in Europe should be the Bundesliga. You know, great football culture, largest population in Europe, strongest economy in Europe but partly because the Bundesliga doesn't allow much foreign money, doesn't want shakes and oligarchs buying into their clubs. 
that kind of reduces the uh, economic potential. And that's why the Premier League, smaller country, is better. Also, because, because of the English, because of the language, the Premier League has a kind of emotional foothold in many countries around the world, including in Ireland. Yeah, no, and I noticed even last week, the Americans, I think it was NBC or one of the American outfits, bought the six-year rights for the Premier League, not from anybody else, but for the Premier League for $2 billion. Because again, Americans, to the extent the Americans watch football, they are watching the Premier League. They're watching, as you say, the English-speaking league. And, and, and do you think that the Premier League will pull away? And if it does, what does that mean financially? So if it pulls away financially, what does that actually mean to the football? I mean, what it means to the football is that money buys players. So in economics, we show there's almost a straight line within one league between the size of your salary bill and where you finish in the league. So the team with the biggest salary bill finishes top, the team with the bottom salary bill finishes bottom. Over 10 years, the correlation is about 90%. Wow. So really, there isn't much more determining football quality beyond salaries. So if the Premier League is buying, is paying the biggest salaries and somebody like Haaland, somebody like Mbappe, the stars of the coming generation, end up in England, you know, the Premier League is going to be is going to be dominant. And Bayern Munich will still survive because they really have this incredible sponsor base. You know, the biggest German companies are kind of aligned behind Bayern. Uh, so that that allows them to overcome the disadvantage of being in the Bundesliga. So the Premier League won't have it to itself. But which league is going to win the most Champions Leagues in the next 10 years? I would say it's going to be the English. And so was that behind all this sort of financial jiggery-pokery and angst and fear on the part of the Italian, Spanish and some of the Premier League clubs? Was that behind the Super League initiative that was torpedoed by the great financial revolutionary that is Gary Neville? Well, you uh, describe this very well in the Irish Times, that there's a new breed of owners who are attracted to the Premier League because they want to make money out of it. Now, this is a new phenomenon in football. Nobody is, no owner has ever really made money out of football. It doesn't happen. You just lose money in football. So people like Roman Abramovich and the Qataris um, who own PSG, they're fine with losing money in football. They have billions. They, they, they just want to play things. But then you have people like the Glazers, John Henry, Stan Conkrey at Arsenal, the Americans who say, look, this is the only sport with a global footprint. Uh, our American sports don't. And these stupid Europeans should wake up and learn how to monetize it. And the way to monetize it is to pay players less and to get rid of relegation, to get rid of the uncertainty of whether you qualify for the Champions League. Even Manchester United, they haven't always qualified for the Champions League in recent years. Economically, that's just a pain for United. They say, let's get rid of that uncertainty. We'll have a Super League, we're guaranteed in it, and we get to play each other every week. So instead of Manchester United Burnley, you have Manchester United Barcelona. Because it's what they are right in saying is that one of the problems of European football, one thing that would make it more attractive is to have more Manchester United Barcelona, Liverpool, Real Madrid matches. We don't have enough of those to satisfy the demand for fans. But fans are completely right in saying nobody wants to close league. The whole tradition of football is that the last can be first. You can rise and have the Cinderella story, which the Super League would preclude. Which is very worrying for Leeds United supporters, because I see we are now 17th in the Premiership, which is only one step above relegation, which is a place we are kind of used to. But it's unfortunately coming around again a little bit too soon for our liking. Then we talk about other leagues. So, for example, the biggest football event local football event in Ireland, which is the FAI Cup Final. And I was brought there, I think John also was brought there as a kid by my dad to Daly Mount in the 70s yes, and 80s. Right? absolutely. So this was a this is the kind of holy of holy for Irish football fans. 
and there's two Titans playing. Bohemians, which are probably a well-known team, even, well, not well, they may be known outside Ireland, but I wouldn't say St. Pat's Athletic now would be that uh, well-known from the cauldron that is Richmond Park, from the <laughs> from the, the, the San Siro of Inchicore, right? <laughs> what happens to the smaller leagues, the, the smaller leagues that people like me mooch along to? The smaller leagues are totally fine. They've been fine for decades, for 100 years. There isn't this race to the death in football. There's a place for everyone. So there's a place for Manchester United and Barcelona, and then there's a place for St. Patrick's Athletic. In the lower divisions in England, there's a place for Rotherham and Halifax because fans of St. Pat's understand that they're not competing with Manchester United. You, uh, St. Patrick's Athletic clubs like that, fulfil a local function. You, you are part of a community. You are appealing to a few thousand people from your yeah. area who care about you. And those people might also be Manchester United or Barcelona fans. They That's are, they are, definitely, definitely. Manchester United doesn't eat St. Patrick's Athletic. They coexist fine. Well, it's interesting because in, in the Irish context, and we, I, I, want to, I want to broaden it out in, in a second before we go, uh, the Irish League, the League of Ireland, was kind of eaten in the 70s and 80s by television. There's no doubt of this. And much of the day... And it used to be a Saturday afternoon, then we put to a Sunday afternoon to try and avoid the Premier League or the, what was the English first, first division. And then it's now, now we're playing at very totally different times of the year, again, to try and avoid, to try and, to try and coexist in that context. And, and unfortunately, attendance did plummet and there was lots of bad management. And you know what happens when, when, when there's a crisis, you tend to get bad management, then you get worse management and lots of compounding decisions. However, now it seems that the leagues are beginning to resuscitate themselves. The league here is beginning to resuscitate itself. Uh, and we get bigger crowds, footballers are staying around because, actually, amazingly, because of Brexit, Irish footballers can't go over at the age of 15 or 16 anymore. So when I talk about the, the lower leagues, how do you think, in your soccer-nomic view, that the lower leagues, so we've got the premiership getting all the money, how do the lower leagues survive financially, the lower clubs? Are you worried about that? No, I'm not at all worried about their survival. I mean, I'd also say the League of Ireland wasn't eaten by the Premier League or, or by televised football from England. It was reduced in stature. Yes. Dramatically, yeah. You became a kind of suburb of English football. You became a lower division of yeah. English football, and so your status suffered with television. But it's still all there. All these clubs are still all there. I mean, I'm also not so optimistic now for Irish football because you, you're not going to get rid of this television competition and the fact that your best players are no longer going to English academies, the way that Roy Keane and Liam Brady went over to England very young, is going to hamper them. Okay. Simon, just before we, let's go back to the Premier League. So you said there was like over a 90% correlation between the wages that the players receive and trophies. You pay the best, this bite to win. So you pay most, you win. And we've looked at the different objectives of the managers of, or sorry, of the owners of, let's say, Arsenal, Tottenham, Liverpool, who want to actually make money. And our sheikhs, for example, Man City, I think Newcastle now, isn't it? Yes. So does that mean that those Man Cities and Chelsea's are kind of, their victories are kind of baked in for the next five or six years? Well, Man City and Chelsea are able to compete with Manchester United and often outcompete them because... Man City and Chelsea are not trying to make a profit and the Blazers are. So the story of English football these past 16 years is Manchester United with a different owner if it had been owned by a Sheikh or an oligarch or just some kind of public-spirited figure. 
would probably have won the league most of those 15 years because United had the highest revenues in England. But they've chosen, the owners have chosen, not to spend all those revenues on the best players, but to take money out of the club. So at the same time when the owners of Chelsea and Man City are putting money into the club, the Glazers have taken money out of United. So they have handicapped what would naturally be the richest English club, which would naturally buy the best players. And so they, the Glazers have helped make the Premier League much more exciting than it would otherwise be. And, and likewise, the owners of Liverpool, you would say? Well, the owners of Liverpool haven't taken money out in the same way the Glazers have. And they've also added great nows in how to run a club. So they have used data to make great transfers. I would cite the hiring of Jurgen Klopp as data-driven, the buying of Mo Salah was data-driven, the insight that Roberto Firmino and Salah would play well together was data-driven, which is very high-level stats that Liverpool are using. So actually, I would say Liverpool's ownership has added value to the club in a way that the Glazers have not at Manchester United, and then the Glazers take out a huge amount of money. So the Glazers are basically saying, this is, this is my company, I'm going to take hard cash out of it because it's, it's my equity. And this is the way I'm going to run it. And can we, I just want to ask, I, I've always felt sorry for Spurs, right? I think you're, you can always, almost always be certain that Spurs will disappoint. Why is a club which is so big, has got such heritage, has a huge fan base, why do Spurs always falter? Is that a function of management, of money? It's a function of money. I mean, in football, the role of management, the role of coaches is massively overrated. And the role of some kind of club character is massively overrated. So I remember when the Abu Dhabi royal family bought Manchester City in 2008-9. People saying, oh, they're City, they'll still screw up, they'll still... Yeah, because they always did. Because that's the club character. And it's completely false. I mean, City are a wonderful team and they've won loads in the last 12 years. So money, 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 money is the story of football. And Spurs don't have quite enough money. They also don't have an owner who wants to put in his own money. To the contrary, the owner wants to take out as much money as he can. So Spurs are kind of the fifth or sixth English club by um, by revenue. So why would we expect them to win trophies? And do you think, before we go, the Super League that was torpedoed by Neville, okay, and by the fans, will that come back? Because it looks to me that it has to come back if the way in which your corporate owners are going to make any money or are going to get any glory. That's something like the Super League has to come back. People have been talking about the Super League since the 1960s. This is an ancient debate in football. I, I'm sure the conversation will come back. I don't think we're going to guess at Super League because the problem of buying a football club is you're buying the most consumer-facing business in the world. And these consumers who call themselves fans are extremely mouthy and powerful. And worse, they don't see it as a business. They don't think the job of football is to make money for owners, and they're completely right in that. So I can see the same kind of drama of Super League versus fans coming back and the fans winning. But really, in effect, with the Champions League, we have the perfect combo for owners because they want to keep their domestic leagues. They want to keep the Premier League. The Premier League for English clubs is more financially valuable than the Champions League. That's why the Premier League is on Saturdays, Sundays, when everyone in the world can watch. And the Champions League is on Tuesday, Wednesday nights when Asians are in bed and Americans are at work. So the Premier League is more important than the Champions League, but the Champions League is kind of the, the tin pot Super League. Brilliant stuff. Listen, Simon, go back to the Spanish dictionary, the tapas, the pinchos, the little cervezas, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, see you, Cheers, man. Simon. Thanks a million. Bye. Well, now, Mac, that was fascinating. And one of the things 
that I find most surprising about that was his comment on your average club. And your big club is about the size of a financial-wise an Ikea store. One store. One yeah. store. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it is amazing. But this is the... I wonder if it's as much of a nightmare. As well, like, yeah, exactly. Ikea. Yeah, no, no, no. I've, I've, I've only done it twice, actually, Ikea. I did it once in Berlin, and that was... Bad enough. No, it was tolerable because I was with two Germans who were Ikea addicts. They knew where everything was. And they were loving it, oh, right? Man. Yeah, I was just following them around going, yeah, whatever, <laughs> whatever, right? But what is really fascinating, John, is the fact that the business model is this winner-takes-all model. And maybe the best way to look at this is that technology always amplifies the winner-takes-all model. Mm. I'll give you an example. In around 1902, 1903, there was about 2,000 opera singers in Italy. And those opera singers were going around, all really, really good tenors or sopranos, and they were singing Italian opera to Italian, to village communities. And this was a big, big deal in Mm. those days, right? Before radio, before the gramophone. What happens is the gramophone comes in and then you can hear the best tenor who might be only slightly better than all the other thousand tenors around. But he or she, if she's a soprano, makes it to the top, right? So therefore, rather than listen to Joe traveling tenor doing his thing, you all sit at home listening to the gramophone. Yeah. And suddenly there's only one tenor when there used to be a thousand tenors. So the technology is what actually amplifies the returns and the concentration of the returns to the very, very best. So it's called the winner takes all model. You can see that now happening in football because the technology is changing completely. So when we were kids, you remember match of the day, right? We do. If, by the way, if you hear the dog barking in the background, this is part of the podcast, right? If, you know, match of the day, you could watch football once a week on a Saturday night at nine o'clock, yeah. right? Now you can watch the football 24-7 if you buy a subscription. And yes. you can continue yeah, to watch yeah, it, yeah. right? So the technology And all the various changed. different leagues around the, the world. The various different leagues and different players and la, yeah. la, 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 la. So the technology amplifies this idea of winner takes all. And therefore, that leads to a buy-to-win scenario where the best teams pay the highest wages and they get the best players. As you were saying, that the correlation between salary and position in the league is is, is is really obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's almost 100% correlation, right? So therefore, you think, who gains then from all this? So it's not the owners, because the owners are just setting up the platform. They're actually risking. Mm. It's the players. So I'll give you an example. Garrett Bale, right? He of the bun, of the man bun, yeah. right? Gareth Pale was the best played footballer in the Premiership last year. He got 600 grand a week. Uh, it's mind boggles. Go on. It would take the average Spurs fan 20 years to earn what Gareth Bale earns in a week. Yeah. So the. And then he can't even score. Uh, but he can, <laughs> and in fairness, he did score in two Champions League finals, but he didn't want to play then. Yeah. He went off in a half, right? Yeah. But the point is, right? That So the disparity between the world of the fan and the world of the player is enormous. Whereas years and years ago, I remember a friend of my dad's was a fellow called Peter Farrell. Mm. Peter Farrell, captain Ireland. He also captained, he was from Dorky as well, so yeah, that's yeah. a cauldron of football. Yeah. <laughs> he captained Everton, the very first Republic of Ireland team, very first Irish team to ever beat England. 
was Ireland in 1947 in Goodison Park. Really? This is deep, deep really? knowledge. Right? Wow. Captained by Peter Farrell. Right. Peter Farrell was a friend of Dad's. He was older, but he was a big hero in Ducky, right? Yeah. So we knew him. He used to come to the house afterwards. So he was a footballer at the height of his game, right? Or the captain of, of Everton, captain of Ireland, uh, the man. And he lived in a normal house like everybody else, right? So because the business model had changed, now you have Gareth Bale, mm. not even a patch on Peter Farrell, I would probably suggest as a player, but earning not just multiples of the salary, but mega multiples of the salary yes. of the average fan. So the dislocations, that's basically what's happened. So if you take the economics of football is the following. It's a winner-takes-all model. Now, the interesting thing is, as technology change, that becomes amplified. But where football and entertainment lead, so too do many professions, right? So what you're seeing in many professions, like, for example, star architects, you know, architects, star yes. architects, you're yeah. seeing the same thing. Lawyers in this country, yeah, yeah. doctors, you know, consultants, all these high-end professions, what you're seeing is a huge disparity between the average, like the average footballer, yeah. and the superstar. The Garrett Bale vis-a-vis the guys that he probably played football with when he started playing at Southampton, right? And that, I think, is the interesting thing, that the economics of football, as we are now seeing it, is a leading indicator for the economics of many, many high-end professions and many, many artisans. So, for example, the very, very best plumber, Mm. the very, very best electrician, the very, very best carpenter, the very, very best shoemaker. These are kind of bespoke things. They're charging miles more. I know, but at the end of the day, that means that, I mean, your average football fan has your average salary. Yeah. So it's, number one, too expensive to go to the matches, to the home matches. Yeah. And number two... 70 or 80 quid in England. Maybe yeah. more, actually. I've, yeah, I haven't yeah. been to a premiership game for years. Well, so. it's it's been a while, but that will be about right. But then you also have, you know, to buy all these subscriptions. So it's not just one particular platform. There's a whole lot, but the, one of the best ones is now, actually. But, you know, there's, there's a huge cost to the average fan. And Simon talked about monetizing the love, the loyalty. Yeah. You know... It's incredibly difficult. It is incredibly difficult. But what is fascinating is that where entertainment and football, entertainment and sport lead, other professions are going. And so the economic model is something that, as you said, is kind of a threat to the fans because the experience of the footballers yeah. and the experience of the fans as a, as a day-to-day Life experience has completely mm. changed. But then you go back to the idea of the economics of heroes, that basically the footballers are the heroes. And most people don't want their heroes to be like them. You want your heroes to be different. Right. You, know, you want your superstars to be superstars and have some sort of mystique. But it is fascinating. But I wonder, though, as well, though, it, it, you know, you also spoke about, you know, what people really want. It's to see the top, top guys playing all the time. So the the Man United's versus the Barcelona's or the, you know, Juventus versus uh, Arsenal or whatever. But, you know, at the end of the day, then it stops being a treat. I mean, one of the reasons why they are so good is that they're they're rare encounters. And And what what is rare is valuable. Yeah, exactly. You can have too much of a good thing. This is why the Americans don't get it. See, the Americans don't get it. So in the American League, you can't be relegated. 
Yes. Right? So this yeah. is the first thing, right? So if you can't be relegated, what's the point? Yeah. Okay. You know, it's a very interesting thing. You know, the Americans inject competition and everything. You know, be a winner, be the best. Mm. And then in sports, they kind of be shite and it's all right. <laughs> but as long as we can actually go and watch you. So two things goes on in America. And this is why I think the American owners don't get what's going on in Europe, right? Number one, you can't be relegated, which takes away the competition. Mm. But it maximizes the revenues because the competition then becomes a one-day event between Barca and Man United. Yeah. But the second thing is, think about what the Americans do to their clubs. They uproot them. So, for example, think in baseball, the, the Brooklyn right. Dodgers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah. taken out of Brooklyn. Yeah. The Oakland Raiders. There's no sense of community. Yeah. The Oakland Raiders play in Las Vegas. Yeah. So it's a bit like saying to Liverpool, look, you remember all that Anfield stuff? Yeah. We're going to play in Elland Road <laughs> next week and see how you like it. So I, I think that what is interesting is if the world of economics, and I think we probably conclude here, is an intellectual battle and has been between the American free market shareholder democracy that we spoke about for many years and the European Rhineland capitalism, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Rhineland capitalism, which is the European way of looking at it. In football, you have the great fusion of the two, whereas the American shareholder capital denigrates the actual spectacle and yeah. turns it into a balance sheet, whereas the yeah. Rhineland capitalism remains wedded to the idea that football is local, local is good, and as what you said, what is rare is valuable. Yeah, but how, how do we compare, you know, like other professional sports? I forget about the American professional sports, but rugby is a great yeah, example. Yeah, and it's really live at the moment because yeah. you get the Heineken Cup is coming up. So rugby went professional relatively recently. Yeah, about 15 years ago. Yeah, so... In your view, well, how do they compare? Well, they're trying to they're trying to do something similar. First of all, the rugby watching audience is tiny in comparison to football worldwide, and it's tiny in comparison to it's football. Growing though, it's growing, but it's still small. Yeah, it's still small. I mean, it's definitely growing, and you can see even in the United States, rugby is the fastest growing sport in universities. Is it? Yeah, so it is. Right. It's definitely growing, but it's still a minority sport. I mean, I love it. It's, it's great, mm. right? And on international match day, it's not a minority sport. That's the interesting thing. So six or 700,000 Irish people will watch Ireland play the All Blacks yeah. on RTE usually, yeah. right? And then there is an element of the bidding war. So RTE, TV3, or sorry, whatever it's called, Virgin now, will try and bid, right? And these are jewels in the crown. Yeah. But as you see recently, if you watched the internationals, the autumn internationals, they were all on Amazon, I think. Amazon Prime. Yeah. So it's going the same way. So you've got the split between broadcasting, match day, and sponsorship. Yeah. Right? And it's that sort of model. There's three areas. Rugby's going the same way, but I think the figures are substantially less. And you see that mainly in the way in which, for example, players are paid. Mm. So we come back to Gareth Bale. Gareth Bale getting 600 grand a week. I would say only a top sliver of the best rugby players in the world get 600 grand a year. Probably, yeah. Right, so yeah. the dynamic's different. But for example, this month, people are going to be watching Leinster, they're going to be watching Munster, Connacht, Ulster with the Heineken Champions Cup. I mean, yeah. this is going to be huge for rugby people. Yes. And so rugby, is, it's, a, it's a similar model, but it's at a much lower level. And but then, it, of course, do you think it's going to grow into that, though? It will as long... I kind of hope it won't. But I think it will. I think it will as long... So, for example, what, what, what you find about rugby is the complete disappearance of local clubs, 
Like when we were young, there was like clubs like Black Rock and Clontarf and Monkstown, Old Wesley and yep. Galwegians and down in Cork, you'd, you'd have had Corcon and all these. Those clubs are almost just hanging on now. Mm. So what you've seen is that the club rugby game has been decimated by the provincial game, but the provincial game was necessary to play in the big league against the bigger clubs in England and in France. And again, what you see is France has got most money because it's got the biggest population. Yes. Yeah, play yeah. It. But the rugby one's interesting and it's going towards the football model, definitely. Yeah. So was, yeah, that was a little interlude about rugby because John was one of the finest scrum halves who ever played. He was quick. He was nimble. He was sniping. He was around the back of the scrum. He had a great relationship with great the number. Great box kick as well. Great box kick number eight. Could read, could read the number eight's mind. It was, it was almost like a quasi back row. Scrum half before yeah, they were back yeah, rows. Yeah. You know, he was the killer nine. That was him. Anyway, back to the football. No, but that, like, you know me. I'm not a huge sports fan or football fan, although I am getting more and more into it. But the business and the, the, the industry itself is fascinating and it's changing rapidly. It, well, so it seems. It's changing rapidly and it's changing in tandem with what's happening in the greater economy. Mm. And I suppose that's always for me the fascinating thing is that is it a leading indicator or is it a lagging indicator? Yeah, and It yeah. looks to me like a leading indicator of where many professions are going. And that I think is one to watch. And you know, it's really interesting that, you know, now gave us this opportunity because I hadn't actually thought about it. I hadn't mm. given, given it much thought before, you know. But uh, so if you want to watch sport. Yes. Now you can get Sky Sports, you can get BT, you can watch live premiership. And of course, now you can watch rugby, Heineken Cup, all in one place with now sports and now sports, extra membership, all from a tenor. 